It's Wednesday, October 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Halloween is here, and it's time to talk about costumes. If you Google sexy anything costume, chances are you'll be directed to Yandy.com, where you can find costumes to be a sexy witch, sexy Mr. Rogers, and yes, even a sexy impeachment costume. Mara Judkis, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the sexy Halloween costume industrial complex. Next, the National Security Council's top Ukraine expert, who sat in on the phone call at the center of the impeachment inquiry, testified before three House panels about how he raised concerns twice that President Trump was pushing for Ukraine to investigate Democrats and the Bidens. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for more on the testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Finally, the five-hour workday is getting put to the test in Germany. Buckle down, work five hours, and get paid the same as a full-time job. One consulting firm is trying it out by discouraging small talk during work hours, banning social media, keeping phones in backpacks, and checking company email just twice a day. Eric Marath, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this could get workers to be more efficient. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. is kind of based on Trump's former ownership of the Miss Universe pageant. And Uh so it's like a peach-colored pageant gown and a princess crown and a sash that says Miss Impeachment and then a necklace that's made out of a whistle. Joining us now is Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Maura. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Halloween, one of my favorite holidays. But this time we're going to be talking about costumes and how crazy these have been. The National Retail Federation anticipates that Americans are going to spend about $3.2 billion on Halloween costumes this year. And a big subset of that are all the sexy, insert name here, costumes. Sexy witch, sexy nurse, sexy Mr. Rogers, which is one of the funny (laughs) ones. Maura, you talked to the vice president of merchandising for Yandy, which is a lingerie and costume company, about this whole thing. Tell us a little bit about that. So they are a really interesting company. If you've ever searched for a sexy Halloween costume, they're probably the first result that comes up on Google for you. And they get a lot of attention every year for these topical and sometimes inappropriate sexy costumes that they do. And I just wanted to see how they were designed. So I was able to sit in on a photo shoot for one of their top costumes this year, which is sexy impeachment. I have not seen that one. Describe to me what that looks like. (laughs) So Sexy Impeachment is kind of based on Trump's former ownership of the Miss Universe pageant. And Uh so it's like a peach-colored pageant gown and a princess crown and a sash that says Miss Impeachment and then a necklace that's made out of a whistle. So you get the joke. (laughs) That is pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, every year we kind of even wait for what's that eye-roll costume, let's say, that happens. And it's always something crazy. There was like a sexy pizza rat, I Mm -hmm. guess, sexy impeachment, sexy Mr. Rogers even, you know, all these different ones elicit some eye rolls, but they're also made to be funny. They're part of a joke, really. Tell us how they go about designing these costumes. So they actually are a group effort among people who work at Yandy. They have this giant spreadsheet that they circulate like towards the beginning of the Halloween season every year. And they all put these crazy ideas down and a lot of them get rejected. And so I actually got to see the list when I was there. And one of the um, rejected costumes that caught my eye this year was they were thinking about doing a sexy AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But then they decided to shuttle that because they weren't sure how she would take it, whether it would be a compliment or an insult. So no 
a sexy AOC this year. <laughs> and where did the rise of all the sexy Halloween costumes come from? Because there's always been women and they've wanted to dress up a little bit nicer on the Halloween. But when did we really start getting into this where everything was made into a sexy whatever costume? started to get a little bit more risque after the sexual revolution, like in the 60s and 70s, but they didn't really become the thing that they are now, I would say, until like the 90s and the early 2000s. And, you know, it's kind of become sort of a punchline or a joke. Like it was a big plot point in Mean Girls. Everyone always remembers that part of the movie. And it's kind of evolved into this thing now where we love the sexy Halloween costume, but we also make fun of it because it's sort of a cliche. And now it's become this kind of like meta ironic joke for people who want to mock the trend by coming up with these really increasingly ridiculous sexy costumes, like things that should never be sexy, like sexy Abraham Lincoln, which is also called Abraham Lincoln, I learned. (laughs) So then it's like, you know, you can't tell whether people are taking it seriously or if they're doing it as a joke now. There's a lot of fun that goes into this, but Yandy has not gone on without coming across some controversy. Every year they hit something that either has to be removed or maybe make an apology. Talk a little bit about that. Sometimes they come right up to this line and sometimes they cross it. And so people probably remember from the other year, the sexy handmaid from Handmaid's Tale. That did not go over well for them. There was a petition. They ended up having to take it down. They had told me that they did that costume because they had just seen protesters wearing the handmaid costumes at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, right. for the Supreme Court. But they didn't really understand, I think, how that would be taken and how it could be seen as kind of a symbol of sexual repression. And another thing that they've gotten in trouble for are their Native American costumes. I think people have started to have a better appreciation and understanding of how people's cultures should not be a costume. So there has been a petition from Native American tribes that want them to take down those Native American costumes, which they ultimately did earlier this year. So it really is kind of subjective on that front. We talked a little bit about the money that goes into Halloween costumes. How much a part of their business is this because primarily they're like a lingerie company for the most part of the year, but Halloween is the time to shine for this stuff. So they make about a quarter of their annual revenue off of Halloween, but the rest of the year they're selling bras and all kinds of other lingerie. But Halloween is a really big business for them. During the rest of the year, they tend to ship about a thousand orders a day, but in the months leading up to Halloween, it's like 9,000 orders a day and their warehouse is super busy. They're just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and they have tons and tons of shipments of Halloween costumes going out all times of the day. Mara Jedkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What the Republicans are trying to do in their, very clearly in their questioning, is try to front door or back door Vindman, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, into revealing who the whistleblower is, even though in his testimony he says he doesn't, he didn't know. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you for joining us, Brett. Thanks, Oscar. So Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, he testified before three different committees, the Intelligence House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. And he is the first person 
that was on this call where President Trump called the president of Ukraine. He's the first person that was on the call to actually testify. And he said he was concerned by the call. He said he didn't think it was proper to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen. And he expressed his concerns at least twice to his superiors. Brett, tell us a little bit about what we know of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's testimony. Like you mentioned, he's the first current White House official and first White House official who was on that July 25th call to come before Congress as part of their impeachment inquiry. So certainly significant for that reason. And he gives a little more credibility to some of the allegations that we've already heard from the whistleblower complaint specifically about the concerns raised in this call that the president was pressuring the Ukrainian president to look into the Bidens, to look into a company with ties to the 2016 election and the Russia investigation. So Alex Vindman has essentially corroborated some of what's in the whistleblower complaint. He adds some credibility, putting a name and a face to those concerns. And he also contradicts some of the testimony from Ambassador Sondland. So lawmakers who are investigating this will have a lot more to work with. And a couple of them have kind of described Vindman's testimony as some additional pieces to the puzzle. Talk a little bit about the contradictions with Ambassador Sondland, because in his testimony, he said that nobody from the NSC ever really reported any concerns. But Vindman himself said he reported this thing twice, that he felt uncomfortable by this. We heard that from Vindman contradicting Sondland, and we saw Brian Taylor in his testimony earlier this month also contradicting Ambassador Sondland and undercutting some of his defenses of his own conduct. So I think it's very possible that Gordon Sondland will be asked to come back to either clarify his testimony or to elaborate on what he had told lawmakers, because what we've seen is that uh, some of his defenses, that there were no concerns raised, that there was no explicit quid pro quo intended. Some of those comments from him have not held up in light of additional testimony. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman had said that he expressed his concerns because he thought this would undermine national security. And he went into the geopolitical importance of Ukraine. And he said that Ukraine is on a Western leaning trajectory. Obviously, they're fighting off things from Russia. And he said that putting all these conditions, you know, withholding the aid and then putting the conditions on investigate the Bidens and Burisma and all this, he thought it would undermine national security in a sense, because it might decrease bipartisan support from those in Congress for Ukraine if they went through with this. Congress appropriated money for Ukraine, military assistance for Ukraine. Like you mentioned, it's of significant geopolitical importance. It's right there by Russia. Ukraine has come under attack both militarily and influence-wise from Russia. So it's really critical for a lot of lawmakers, both Republican and Democrat, that Ukraine is a strong democratic nation, that it upholds those principles. And so Alex Vindman obviously raised those concerns and saw any attempts to kind of make that aid contingent on an investigation as problematic. And that's sort of what Democrats have certainly seized on. As he said, you know, it's been bipartisan. Republicans have obviously supported this aid for Ukraine, and some of them raised concerns when it was initially delayed about it. So certainly he has passed commentary from lawmakers on both sides to back up his assertion there that he viewed this as problematic to be messing with aid with investigations. This testimony was behind closed doors, but we're getting some news of what happened in there. And apparently there was some type of heated exchange between Representative Eric Swalwell and GOP Representative Mark Meadows. Basically, Democrats were saying that Republicans were trying to do an end run around and try to find out who the whistleblower was. I guess they were trying to maybe ask, well, who have you talked to? Who else have you talked to about this to see if you might have slipped up and named that whistleblower? 
So Democrats have been critical, obviously, of those attempts by Republicans. The specific exchanges have been you know, a little murky, and Republicans have defended their conduct as simply posing questions to the witnesses, suggesting that Democrats are blocking them from getting answers from witnesses. So a lot of it is kind of political posturing, I think. But certainly that's been something Republicans have kind of seized on, has been the lack of transparency in this whole process. And this kind of just seems to be yet another talking point for them to kind of paint this as taking place behind closed doors, not transparent not following the procedures that they believe are rightful in this case. Once people found out that Colonel Vindman was going to be testifying, he's a Ukrainian-American immigrant who came to the country when he was three years old. He got a Purple Heart when he served in Iraq. He's a career civil servant. But right away, there was attacks on some networks that were saying, oh, he might be engaging in espionage because he was born in Ukraine. President Trump for himself said, I don't even know who this guy is. Why was he even on that call? The perfect call, as he asserts. What else did the president have to say about Colonel Vindman? So President Trump, predictably so, has tried to distance himself from Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, has tried to paint him as unreliable. He called him a never-Trumper this morning to suggest that he was politically opposed to him from the beginning. As you mentioned on cable news, we saw a few of the president's allies and conservative voices subtly or not so subtly question whether Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's loyalty was in doubt because of his ties to Ukraine and because he was tasked with, you know, advising Ukraine and dealing with the Ukrainian policy. So it's been sort of a concerted effort from the president and his allies, at least on cable news, to try and distance themselves, to try and cast doubt on his reliability and his credibility. But Democrats, certainly, and even some Republicans we've seen have spoken out and said it's inappropriate to question this man's patriotism, to question his loyalty to the country. They've pointed, as you mentioned, to his service in Iraq. So that has been a tough strategy, I think, for the president and his allies to try and cut down Lieutenant Colonel Vindman in in that sense. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're not really doing more than five hours of work during the day. You're maybe checking Facebook. You're maybe emailing something for your home, calling a doctor, doing all those types of things. And his idea is let's just buckle down and focus from eight to one. No Facebook, no even company email. Cut all that out. Joining us now is Eric Morath, labor and economics reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, happy to join you. We love bringing you on to talk about management, career stuff, work place issues. The labor system in Germany has been getting a lot of attention lately. There's some Democratic presidential candidates who are pushing for certain elements of the German labor system. The one thing we're going to talk about today, where a couple of firms out there are trying it out, is the five-hour workday. I would love to get something like this done, but it's just tough to get everything done in a shorter time schedule. So tell us a little bit about this, Eric. How does this five-hour workday actually work out? So I got a chance to spend all five hours with this company in Germany that's trying this out. And it's really interesting. The idea is to remove all the distractions. Their managing director sort of makes the argument that you're not really doing more than five hours of work during the day. You're maybe checking Facebook. You're maybe emailing something for your home, calling a doctor, doing all those types of things. And his idea is let's just buckle down and focus from eight to one. No Facebook, no even company email. Just check email when you get in and a half hour before you leave and don't get into those reply all messages and the instant messengers. Cut all that out. Focus on work. Focus on one-on-one interactions. Try to limit the big group meetings and try to keep those to about 15 minutes. And 
you know, he claims, at least for his company, he's seen the same production and his employees, as you imagine, uh, seem a lot happier. One thing about this, though, is that this type of work week, this type of work schedule wouldn't really apply across all industries. I mean, there's very few industries where you could actually do something like this. What kind of company were you following where they were able to get this done? So this is a like a small tech consulting firm. They do projects for other businesses like build an e-commerce site or build a, an, a mobile app for, for a company. So I think that they have an advantage to do this because they can kind of set out like we're going to accomplish this project in two or three weeks. So say we're doing it in two weeks. We need to get this done in 50 hours. Like, how can we divide this over time? Where if you're on a business that you're constantly responding to customers or on deadlines every day, or every hour, maybe this doesn't work as well. But I did talk to the CEO, Lassie, about this. And he said, you know, maybe not exactly. It couldn't be applied. But he said, you know, maybe there's ways where you could have shifts. Even think about like a hospital. Maybe it's better to have like a five-hour shift and employ more technology and automation to get some of the other work done. And, and yeah, you might need to have more people staffed on staggered shifts, but he thinks there is something to be said about trying to concentrate people's work, even in non-tech industry. I think there was another company in San Diego who tried something out and they said initially it was a success, but after some time, what developed was less enthusiasm for work, more enthusiasm for all that outside time. That company, uh, Tower Paddleboards, said, you know, initially it's kind of similarly like a big success. They saw benefits, but they said as they kind of brought new people in that were brought in after the change, they didn't really appreciate it as much. And they sort of started acting like they did in an eight hour day, but during five hours. So again, back to chatting, texting with friends or checking social media. So it's kind of keeping that discipline. And like you say, it's sort of a personal maturity. That's kind of the struggle, I think, is whether you really can continue to reward people, say, hey, you get your work done. I don't need you to just sit here for another three hours, but to make sure that they are getting work done. And and so what that company did in San Diego is now they do it during the summer to enhance their ability to surf. But then the rest of the year, they go back to the eight hour day. And they say that kind of works in the sense that they have these moments where they have to cram everything in in five hours and they come up with new innovations. They change the way they ship their paddle boards and dealt with their vendor UPS to take care of that. And they did that because the guy wanted to leave the warehouse at one o'clock with everyone else to hit the beach. So (laughs) he figured out a way to get these paddle boards taken care of at one instead of waiting there in the warehouse till five. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would love an expedited work schedule, five hours and you're out. It really seems like a lot of people would enjoy that. People value this increased flexibility much more than pay a lot of times. We even have the rise of the gig economy. People can choose to work when and how they want a lot of times. While I think across the board, something like a five-hour workday or a four-day work week, which I know a lot of people always talk about, those are hard to implement. But do we see ourselves going somewhere towards this? I think that you are going to see that as a potential perk of employment that sort of saying like, hey, can I get this worker that I want by instead of you know offering them more salary or more vacation time or, or better benefits, can I get them because I'm going to offer them a more flexible schedule? You already see that with a lot of tech firms. We've done stories in the past about people that live in North Carolina and work in Silicon Valley in the way that in that tight labor market in California, they're able to get laborers because they're allowing them to telework. And even in this story, Lassie told me that they got an award-winning designer, someone that really would have been out of the league of a smaller company, but she wanted to cut back on her work hours to accommodate her young child. And he's like, I can give you a full-time job, a full-time paycheck. And she was willing to take a part-time job. So he ended up getting a better worker than he would have otherwise. Eric Morath, labor and economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, always a pleasure. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.